take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10. A couple months ago, three firemen from Long Island were arrested. Their crime, they were starting fires over a several month period. A similar case was in Houston, Texas, right outside of Houston. The firefighters there said this, we had nothing to do. We just wanted to see the red lights flashing and the bells clanging. <laughs> now, the, the job of firemen is to put out fires, not to start them. What's the job of Christians? What would you say a Christian is called to do? Certainly, I'd say serving others would be near the top of the list. Jesus Christ came not to be what? Served, but to what? serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A Christian who is not serving somehow, some way, is a Christian not doing their job, like a fireman setting fires, not doing what they are called to do. Now, there are a lot of words I suppose we could use for this, volunteer, minister, serving. They describe the action of a believer who is in the mission to strengthen and expand the kingdom of God. Now, when we think of serving, we normally think of, you know, inside ministry walls. But I want us to kind of expand what ministry could mean. Ministry really is an all-encompassing word. Why can it not include family? Do we not minister in our families? Why can it not include job? Are we not ministering on the job? Why can't it include life in our neighborhood? Is that not ministry as well? We could ask it this way. Are we ever not in ministry? I mean, really. Are we ever not serving Christ? Are we ever not responsible to be faithful and obedient? Now, ministry certainly includes church, but I want us to just kind of take a wider view here and see that Ministry can also include these other venues of life. Seeing every scene of our lives as opportunities to serve Christ, I think that's a part of being a good disciple. And being a bad one is thinking that we've got stuff that we're going to just do ourselves, that we're going to have the say in some areas of life and not let God in to speak into those other areas. That's what you call living by the flesh being self-serving, self-sufficient, and not letting Christ reign supreme. You know, maybe we want to not serve Christ in our families, and so we might ignore biblical directives. Maybe we don't want to serve God in business with our jobs, and we think, you know, I give God an hour on Sunday, and, you know, from 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, that's business. The rest of it is my time, yeah, I give God time on Sunday. That's not discipleship. God is over it all. No matter the excuse or the reasoning that's behind not allowing Christ to be Lord of our lives in any of those areas, the bottom line is we want to call the shots and not him. We want to do what we want. We're not submitting to the Lord's will in all areas. Now, when it comes to church, we might think that there are things that are unique about the church life 
unique to the hurts, reasons that, that justify our desires sometimes not to serve at all. At least in our own heads, we think it's justifying it. But when we quit serving, we quit volunteering. It's just like in any of these other areas. We're walking in disobedience. You know, there are good reasons, though, I suppose, in our heads at least, that people think this. They think, well, I really can't make a difference. Or I remember 10 years ago I did something. I really got hurt there. I don't want to do that again. Or maybe you don't feel equipped. And it's not that any of these experiences are to be glossed over or they're not real. The hurts can be very real. But in the end, what really matters is having our hearts completely yielded to God and not making excuses to not yield to God in any of these areas. So by yielding, I mean that there's an availability, a willingness that we offer ourselves to Christ as a willing sacrifice. I think you'd agree with me that one day we will stand before Christ as Christians. We're all going to stand before Christ. And there's going to be incredible blessing, incredible rewards. But we're also told that we're going to be accountable for our lives. It's a very sobering thought, one that we don't like to talk about, we don't think about often, but we're going to be accountable for our words and our actions and our thoughts. Okay, so what that tells me is, you know, there might be some who will think, okay, you know, I didn't love my wife the way that I should, but I've got some pretty good excuses. I mean, I'm in pain myself. You know, I didn't really get all my needs met, and so I had a right to kind of stand up for myself and not love my wife and serve her like I should have. Now, do you really think that that's going to stand up? In the last day, us saying to Christ, well, listen, I had hurts of my own. That's why I didn't love her. I had some daddy issues. That's why I didn't love her. I'm not saying don't attend to those. But in the end, is that really going to stand up? I can't imagine holding up to Christ, why I didn't serve maybe brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, because somebody hurt me in the past, and now I'm too scared. Again, it's not that those situations aren't real. But I think compared to that day, it kind of pales in comparison, doesn't it? And so maybe what that does is if we just kind of step back then, maybe there are things that are going on that are far more important. Things that maybe we normally miss, but if, if we sit and think about what some of the things that Christ particularly is trying to say to us in the passage I'm going to turn to in Matthew 10, maybe he can get us to look at more eternal, important matters, have a perspective that can really help us in the times of those hurts. And maybe it's, it's kind of like God pulling the weeds out so that what we have to offer can really grow and be fruitful. So Lord, I pray that you might do that for us today. You'd pull some weeds. And Lord, I know that there are people at various points in their spiritual walk various points of serving. And again, we look at serving as family, job, any, anywhere. We, we're serving you. We want to honor you, be faithful to you. Help us to have that wide view of serving. 
But in doing so, Lord, may we, may we do it well, may we be faithful to the task. And for where we've made excuses, we've thought we've had good reasons, confront us with that as well. May your truth reign supreme. Give us a perspective that not just challenge, but greatly encourage us as well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a great model that Jesus provides us for how we're to serve. It's a model that he gave his disciples when they were just starting out in ministry. Now, I'll warn you, this is not easy. Uh, this is, this is uh, difficult stuff to kind of wade through. Sometimes you feel like you're getting a pat on the back. Other times you feel like you're getting slapped in the face. Right? It's all truth. It's all necessary. This is dangerous territory because it, I think it pierces our hearts. So whether you have weeds, whether you're tired, or maybe you just need encouragement, I think there's something here for all of us. I'm going to read sections and then comment on it. We're going to go through the whole chapter today. So I'll look at just kind of main principles uh, this is, a, I know, a little different for us because normally I'll break apart a verse and uh, just dig in. So this is kind of more just a broad view that I think is good for us at this time, at this season. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Don't we have a tendency to kind of rewrite our stories? But I, this is what I love about the Word of God. It gives it the way it happened. It tells the story the way it was, doesn't sugarcoat it. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Even Jesus had a dropout in ministry. Judas is in the mix here. What's that tell us? Don't be surprised by failure. I could take all afternoon to tell you about failures in ministry that I've experienced. This is not faux humility, this is reality. Whether it's personal failures or failures with programs or different ministries, it's just a part of the deal. And trust me, it would be like sitting there looking at a car wreck, you're all gawking, just wondering, wow, really, it was that bad, okay. But we don't have time for all that, okay. The bottom line is, we cannot be surprised by failure. Who can imagine more damage that could be done than what Judas did? I mean, he was a catalyst for seeing the Son of God murdered. I mean, that's, that's about as bad as it gets, right? Let me ask you this. Was that Jesus' fault? No, we don't blame Jesus for Judas' betrayal, right? We recognize that this was a disaster. We recognize the great disappointment, the great hurt, and that's a part of it, but we don't blame Jesus. And what does that tell us? That sometimes 
Failures occur. It's just a part of it. You might not have anybody to blame. You don't blame yourself. And maybe sometimes you are to blame. But here's a case. No. If Jesus experienced something like Judas, then I don't think we can imagine ourselves being immune to failure. So don't be surprised by failure. Number two, clarify your mission. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Specific directives to the disciples. Go here, don't go there. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to say. Specific directives, a vision. Now, I don't think he was saying, don't talk to Gentiles or minister to them on the way, but he's saying, all right, I want you to make covenant Israel, the Jews, the priority right now. We're going to go to them first. There was a vision. And in any ministry, understanding the purpose and the goals and the vision, that's step one, right? So I'd say for us here today, if you've been a part of CCC, and maybe you're even serving somewhere, and you don't know the vision, understand the vision, that's, bad. that's on us. Knock on our door, call us on the phone, email, find out what that is, all right, before we go any further. Because many times, people quit because there's not a compelling vision. They don't understand why it is we're even here. Equipping and empowering people and their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. Clarify your, vision, your mission. Next, pack light. Don't get too attached to material stuff. Matthew 10.9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labor deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Now, commentators don't all agree about how this applies. They, many will say these are just specific instructions given to these 12. That, that could be. But I think if we, if we pan out, there's certainly application here that we can make for all of us. And that is, we cannot get too attached to the things of the world. Right? I know that's maybe like, uh, you know, looking at a zebra and saying... Uh, don't look at the stripes. Because <laughs> we live in a culture that just fosters the materialism. You know, marketing is based on us not being content. Then Jesus comes along and the scriptures and it talks about being content. So I realize the, the difficulty in all of this. But the bottom line is material possessions aren't enough to fill us and motivate us for the long run. They're short-lived, and they can be a distraction and get us off track when it comes to ministry. And again, wide view of ministry, family, job. Put us on a treadmill, always wanting more. Contentment is elusive. I talked to somebody this week who was saying, you know what, I'm going to switch jobs. I'm going to quit what I've been doing. Been successful. And I'm going to do this. Why? I tried to do this because 
I can't serve my family the way I need to with this present job. That's, that's understanding, I think, a kingdom mindset. See, uh, kingdom-minded people don't love material possessions. Kingdom-minded people love what material possessions can do. They love how it can impact the kingdom. Big difference. Nothing wrong with enjoying it. Nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, all these things that God lets sift through our hands like sand were to use in a way that will impact the kingdom. Paul told Timothy, don't get too distracted. Timothy was a young pastor, and he said this to him in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What does that mean, civilian pursuits? Does that mean, you know, we can't be a part of the monetary system? We shouldn't buy insurance in a society? Some view it as that. I, I think that's a little crazy. I think he, he gets a little bit more pointed in 1 Timothy 6.10 where he says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. The evil is in the lack of contentment. The evil is not in money itself. The evil is getting sidetracked. We get off into the weeds. And being, being like that can shipwreck our faith. You say, well, how's that? Well, because I think it impacts our willingness to serve in the kingdom. Because it, Listen, there are a lot of folks that they will do anything at any time of the day or night to earn an extra dollar. Overtime, no problem. But when it comes to serving for the kingdom of God, they'll find every excuse not to. Way too busy. The Bible has a word for it. It's called wandering. Wandering from the faith. Let God deal with those who reject you and your message. This is the next part of our... Matthew 10, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the, the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's like, whoa, really? I mean, listen, when you're involved in ministry, and again, wide view, right? Uh, there, are, there are people that may reject you or reject the message or reject what you stand for. Now, let's understand these disciples had like an itinerant ministry. So you can go from one house to the other. If somebody rejects you, you can move to the next one who maybe is willing to take you in. That we get. Now, we don't have many itinerant ministries going on. So how does that apply to us? Well, I think what it means is you go to where God is moving. I mean, if you have family that rejects you, you still love family. You still can stay connected to family. But there's a priority and an ultimate allegiance there that I'll get into a little later. God will take care of those who reject us or who reject the gospel. That's God's job to deal with the justice of all of that. I don't have to take that on myself. I don't have to retell my story a hundred times to make sure everybody else knows who the evil person was, who the bad guy was in the story, to put somebody else in their place. I don't have to do that. And neither do you, because that's God's job. God will take care of that. You don't have to make sure everybody hears your side of it. God will take care of that. 
when we refuse to serve others because others have rejected our message or us. It's almost like saying to God, I have to deal with this on my own way, and I don't want to have to deal with these people anymore. Let's not think this, that because we serve in any form or fashion, that people owe it to us to respond well. That's not guaranteed. Here's what God has called us to do, to be obedient, to be faithful. We'll trust God with the rest. But the bottom line is, am I faithful in doing what God has called me to do and responsible? And see, maybe you're in ministry, let's say, with your family. Are you, are you faithful in obedience to what God has called you to do in your family? You're not there in this, this transaction, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. See, when, when my spouse gives me what I want, then, you know, then we're cooking. How about you be so in tune with God, so in tune with his unconditional love for you, that you love even though you may not get back what you want. That's a disciple. Here's the other one. Expect intense opposition. Take a look at our passage. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Again, specific things to the 12, yes, definitely. But I think there's a general application for here uh, for us as well. You can expect opposition. You can expect even intense opposition. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, here's the manual I want to give you for ministry. These are things that are important for you to know before you go out. Read this. You will encounter wolves. You will be taken to court and unjustly accused. You will be beaten. You will experience betrayal from those closest to you, family and friends. Ready, set, go. Don't be surprised by these things. Don't go acting as if injustice is something unique to you. Don't think that you're the exception and opposition shouldn't be a part of your experience. Maybe it actually helps to hear this because the temptation is to think our case is different. I mean, Jesus didn't say here, suck it up and quit acting like it doesn't hurt. Because the fact is, it really does hurt. And, and the greatest hurt is the betrayal. I mean, it's from those closest to you. People who pledge their undying loyalty will then turn their back and not talk to you again. That's what's up ahead. They will not give you the time of day. They don't care to resolve the issue. Again, this is nothing unique to ministry. It happens in families. It happens at work. Betrayal. So we have to adjust our expectations. And part of our expectation is don't think that opposition is not going to happen. I mean, that's just naive. And by the way, there is a devil, right? And there's spiritual warfare, right? I mean, he hates progress being made in the kingdom of God, right? And it also, it says that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light. That means things in the church 
Satan loves to have people presume the worst. Loves that. Because what does that do? That causes us to act on that. That's a precursor to disunity. He loves to have people gossip. Man, that stirs the pot. Gets it going. Spreads it. What makes us think we might be immune to these things? Nothing. We cannot be surprised by opposition. Here's the great promise. God has outfitted us to withstand the opposition and to be fruitful. When they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the child will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. God will give you the words to say in that critical juncture. Now, does that mean then that the opposition, when God gives you the words to say, will suddenly realize their error, they will fall on their knees, they will beg for your forgiveness, they will admit their fault, and they'll quit opposing you. No, none of that is there. That's not the promise. Let's remember this. Jesus' opposition took it to the nth degree. They killed him. And many of these disciples experienced opposition to the point of death. Right? And verse 20 lets us know that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say at critical moments. However, when opposition comes, some people are going to fold. Some will deny him. Some will continue to be fearful, wanting the approval of people. So they quit serving. They quit ministering. Again, broad view, not just church. Job, home, friends. Matthew 10.22 addresses it further when Jesus said, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a tricky passage there. Let me just add this. Saved doesn't always mean saved from hell. I don't think that's what it means here. Whenever you see the word saved, many get into, I think, some real theological issues, deep problems when they think that every time that word is used, it's about hell. It's not. And in this case, I don't think it means being saved from persecution either because many of these guys would die, be tortured for their faith. Let me just add this again. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. See, he's taking the closest relationships that we can imagine on earth, friends, family, and saying they will hurt you deeply. That's going to happen. And he says, but the one who endures to the end. What does that mean, to the end? 
I take it to mean to the end of the persecution. In other words, when it stops, either by your own death or some other means. But until then, God will save us. In other words, he will outfit us, check this out, with what we need for that moment to stand strong, to continue to be bold. We will not lose our rewards. The rewards will be saved. We have everything we need to not fold. So the next time you serve and you get criticism, know that God is there in his power, his his presence, his promises. And verse 24 and 25 let us know that if Jesus had opposition, it's silly for us to think that we'll be exempt from it. God, through the Holy Spirit, will give you the strength and the courage to boldly continue to lift up Christ in service. And then verses 26 through 33, listen to this. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So he's contrasting people and God. People can kill the body. But God deals with the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are all more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Every single act and thought just like a hair on your head is recorded, is known by God. Everything you do with faithfulness and obedience to God will be rewarded. That's the neat thing. I didn't didn't mean for this to turn out the way it did, Lord. I, I loved, and these people took it wrong. God knows that. He knows it. It didn't turn out. Yeah, that's true. People presume, but God knows that. Do you think he's going to just let that slide? Do you think that he's not going to reward you? Think he forgets about it? No. No. He will reward. God expects nothing less than complete fidelity and faithfulness. He's the one to fear. Some will get rewards. Some won't. We answer to God and not men. So we need to quit trying to please just other men, ultimately. God expects, expects nothing less than complete fidelity and faithfulness. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a very difficult passage. It's almost like is Jesus pitting family members against one another? No. He's not saying that be a jerk, turn people off in your family, hate them. No, it's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying that when you stand up for Christ, and many find this, that when they come to Christ and they maybe have lived in an irreligious home or a religious home that rejected the gospel, Family members don't like that. They don't like that conversion. They will stand against it. At that point, 
your fidelity is measured. Will you love father or mother more than Christ? Faithfulness is ultimately to him, not to a family member. It's tough stuff. It's a difficult passage. I mean, when, a, when a mother forbids her daughter to become a Christian, that girl has to choose Christ. When a father forbids his son to walk with God or go this way with the will of God, the son needs to follow Christ. It's tough. And some Christians, frankly, aren't willing to pay the price. Some would rather have the approval of friends, the approval of family. I've seen it. I've seen parents trying to gain the approval of their children, not standing up for truth in the home, not confronting their children, not calling sin, sin, because they want to be loved by their child more than they want to be faithful to Christ. When it comes to serving Christ, realize your goal is not so we can just get a great response from somebody that will approve of us. It's not to be popular. It's to be faithful and obedient to what God has called us to do. I mean, this is just basic, fundamental discipleship. And I think we all need to be reminded of it, do we not? And here's another cool thing. God will reward the faithful. Whoever receives you, receive me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. There's not only rewards here for, for standing up for Christ against family members, there's rewards for how we're receiving other people in the body of Christ, particularly leaders. And whoever gives one of these little ones, who are the little ones? Well, I believe that to be the, the, the disciples, the apostles. Even a cup of water, because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he'll by no means lose his reward. So when you, when you support, instead of attack, the spiritual leaders, God rewards that. Take the picture back a little. As representatives of Jesus, our rejection or acceptance that other people have towards us is their rejection or acceptance of Jesus as well. And God promises to reward those who are accepting of Jesus and accepting of his messengers and of his people. So when you, when you support God's servants, you're honoring God. Now, does this mean Christian leaders shouldn't be held accountable? No, it's not. It's not the topic of the passage. Of course you hold Christian leaders accountable. I don't believe for a second that pablum that people throw out, Christian leaders will say, don't touch God's anointed. Like, how dare you question me? You are to hold your teachers accountable. You're to hold your spiritual leaders accountable. And they're to have people over them that they are to answer to. And I have, I have elders that I answer to. That's, that's a part of the deal. I'm, I'm to submit to them as well. But the bottom line here is there, there's great reward for the faithful. And there are many people who give up their rewards. Why? Because they don't endure. They give up the first time trouble comes. And again, I'm, t I'm not just talking ministry church. I'm talking about wide path. And I, I've shared with you before about, you know, Janet and I, and I you know, we've been married 38 years. Believe it or not, I haven't always been a peach to live with, all right? I mean, there, there was a couple times where the bags were packed, okay? 
really hard, really, really hard. And uh, it's on me. But if either of us would have given up in those first few years, look at what we'd have lost. We got four children, soon to be eight grandchildren. One of our kids and, her, and, and their kids are living with us now because they'd sold their house and are looking for another house. We've had a month with our grandkids, and it's like, you might think, oh, man, you must be going nuts. We're loving it. We have our grandkids to spoil and love on, and we get to know them and see their little distinct personalities. It's really been a blessing. That's a, that's a reward. It's a reward that we can have a relationship with our children, and they, they know Christ, and they attend church. That's, a, that's, I think, a reward. And I would have given all of that up if I'd have given up on marriage, or if Janet would have given up on the marriage. And that's not to even speak of the heavenly reward. Now, just apply that in every other area of life. Faithfulness, obedience has great reward. At the first sign of trouble, don't run. There are many others who have stayed, and they've stayed for the long haul, and God has rewarded them. Now, let me be quick to add. I'm not saying that in the case of the supply it to the home, I'm not saying that you stay when there's been an abusive person or, you know, habitual adultery. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you stay in a church where leaders are abusive, who don't listen to instruction. I'm not saying that. So I know those are kind of exceptions. What I'm saying is that we exhibit faithfulness whenever possible. We honor God. There's a great reward in that. Here's the key to the whole passage. I want you to remember this. Your rejection by others, your rejection is a pathway to reward. This might be one of the most freeing concepts for us. Think of this. The next time somebody rejects you, either in ministry or family even, realize this, they are giving you an opportunity for great reward. You realize that? They're giving you an opportunity for great reward. I may not get from this person what I wanted, but I continue to love and be faithful. There's going to be great reward in that. Vengeance is not your job. Paying that person back is not on you. God will take care of that. And thank God that he's big enough to do that. Thank God that, you know, he sees the motives, he sees every word, he gets it all. I want to end this message by talking about, here's what God promises to us when trouble comes. Involved in ministry, again, I want to remind ourselves, wide swath, I'm not just talking about walls of the church. What can we expect from God? Number one, God will deal justly with those who reject God's servants. God will take care of it. Number two, God will provide you what you need in the moment of rejection, including all the strength and the words to say, to make a stand for Christ. Number three, God will strengthen you to persevere through the difficulties. Number four, God will reward you for every word, every deed done to honor and serve him. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. Nothing goes unrewarded by him. Your rejection 
is a pathway to great reward.